five. Pretty cool, Amazing. right? Restream Absolutely. is low. Yeah, I've never used this platform before, but it's really fluid and works really nicely. Yeah, uh, I met actually someone at a uh, at a search fund event uh, told me about this. So um, let's uh, let's get going. So I'll, I have a little introduction, and then we'll go from there. Let's do it. Cool. So um, hello everybody. I am Josh Levine, uh, and welcome to another episode of Private Market Insights, which is our conversation series where we discuss important topics related to the small business M and A industry. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Private Market Labs a new platform designed to democratize the small business acquisition process. We are covering search fund investors today, and we'll be exploring the topic from a variety of angles, how to find investors, how to manage relationships with them, and how to start investing in search funds yourself. Our guest today is Somil Jarawala, founder of FEDA Fund. And we're not talking about cheese. So FEDA is an acronym meaning founder-focused entrepreneurship through acquisition, which I didn't know until I saw this on your website. A fantastic acronym. Um, but uh, Somil has been working as a search fund investor since 2016. He was at Trilogy Search Partners before starting Feta Fund with a goal of investing in a thousand search funds, uh, including actually a few of my friends. So Matthew Udomfall, uh went to high school with me, for example. So uh, pretty small world. Um, but uh, super excited to have you on the uh, pod today. Yeah, super excited to be here and chat about the thing I love the most in the world, which is search funds. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, well, let's... Uh, Let's jump right in. We see uh, we'll have a number of people joining uh, joining as we uh, as we move forward. But um, I guess I'd love to start by hearing a little bit about your investing work. So you said you want to invest in a thousand search funds. Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of deals you tend to invest in? Whether there's any sort of commonalities when it comes to size, industry, deal structure, uh, why those kinds of deals? Yeah, absolutely. And let me first start by talking about the why. Right? I mean. Uh, Sure. We're in a kind of once in a generation event in the United States for you know the silver tsunami it's called where thousands and thousands of baby boomers are retiring. So you know just about 49% of American small businesses are owned by baby boomers. The youngest baby boomer is 59. That means over these next couple of years we're going to have tons of business owners that are retiring. And um, you know I do a little bit of pro bono small business consulting work on the side and the surprising thing is that for a lot of these small businesses they don't have an exit plan. Yeah. And if the owner passes away, that's 10, 20, 40 people who are suddenly out of a job. And so the thing I love about the search fund space is it's a true win-win-win. Investors make a lot, make you know great returns. The searchers themselves are kind of richly rewarded, both economically and you know, it's just exciting and meaningful to be a CEO. And we're helping keeping uh, you know American small businesses alive. And so when I think about that goal, right, to invest in a thousand search funds, to me, that's a thousand small businesses that are, you know kept from shuttering down or from being bought by some private equity firm that's going to you know, rip out costs and fire a bunch of employees. So um, that's kind of how I think about it. Uh, and so what I kind of find is that where this model works the best economically happens to be the place where that value proposition is most deeply felt. And so generally that means companies that are less than $25 million of enterprise value, those, those can be, there's some really wonderful small businesses in there that are so small, they don't, there's not really like an exit plan. There's, there's no one to buy them. Um, so generally 10 to $25 million is where I think there's a sweet spot. There's great businesses less than 10 million of enterprise value, but it's, it's exceptionally hard to figure out the good ones from the ones that, um, you know, there isn't really like a product or service there. 
uh, it's a cult of personality around one person. So 10 to 25 is the place where it's still difficult, but you can kind of find some magic. Industry, pretty industry agnostic. For me, it's, you know, kind of geographic focus across the U.S. Um, the big thing is we're just trying to identify diamonds in the rough, wonderful businesses that are 10 to $25 million of value, but there's no reason they can't be 50 or $100 million. There's no reason that business with 25 employees can't be a business with 100 employees. So. Gotcha. And so is there something, what is it about like a $10 million business versus a $5 million business? You mentioned sort of the, like a cult of personality around the the founder or the owner. Um, is there something, of, you know, that happens, you know, as you transition from five to 10 million, whether it's size, number of employees, com- operational complexity that sort of turns a business from a, uh, um, a passion project or, uh, you know, into something that's kind of more of a going concern over the course of generations. Yeah. I think there's two big risks with acquiring businesses that are less than 10 million of enterprise value. And I want to be clear, like there are people who do that successfully, but, um, there's, there's two ways you can really get in trouble that make it just even more difficult to search for and acquire a great business. The first is that, uh, a lot of these companies with less than $10 million of enterprise value um, are still early stage ventures. They haven't quite figured out product market fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a wonderful quote I heard from a Stanford student about why she wanted to search, which is that she didn't see herself as she didn't want to start a business. She wanted to edit one. And for mm-hmm. a lot of the folks out there who are thinking about being searcher CEOs, that's what's exciting to them. It's not being a startup person and trying to figure out product market fit, it's taking something that works and taking it to the next level. And so ultimately, I think that's a lot easier. Um, it, it's uh, with businesses less than 10 million of enterprise value, it's pretty hard to figure that out in 30 to 90 days if they've established product market fit. But it's pretty hard to fake it. If you have a business that's kind of, the financials are in a place where someone would be willing to pay $10 million for it, it's, it's pretty hard to fake that, that you have achieved product market fit. To get there, you kind of have to. That's the first thing. And then closely tied to that is um, you'd be amazed how many sellers I run into that are able, that essentially are selling vaporware, but they're just amazing salespeople and um, uh, customers will pay pay them for that, but there isn't really a there there. Hmm. Um, and those, you know, uh, I can think of one situation where it was a seller who had 10, 10 golf buddies that were at these kind of massive Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, a million dollars was a really small part of their, their P&L. And so they just kind of threw it at them for miscellaneous professional services. But they really weren't buying anything. Right. And so that was a really interesting business, right? Because what would you expect from a company like that? The margins are really high, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't actually have a product to deliver. Uh, the revenue is really sticky. Why? Because it's all based on a relationship, right? So businesses like that, where it's a cult of personality around a founder that's an incredible salesperson, but doesn't actually have a product that they're delivering, um, it, it can. Uh, those businesses can look like amazing companies that are these diamonds in the rough, when really it's just that cult of personality around one person who's been able to build, make a living um, by monetizing those relationships. Gotcha. No, thank you. That that's really helpful. And then in terms of like how your investment comes in, in terms of the broader structure of the deal. So are you typically working with people where it'll be kind of a combination of equity and debt and they'll bring in an investor to help pay for like a larger down payment and then take out a loan? Do you see, do you sort of partner with other investors where, you know, it's sort of a a straight up, like full cap table of different equity providers? Like, like what typically 
is there a specific investment structure that you like to do like to work within or is it pretty yeah. agnostic? There's a, there's a couple things. One, uh, I love to be a minority investor. The reason is because, you know, I, I think I'm a smart guy, but uh, I love when I get to invest alongside 11 other really smart people that bring their own experience and thoughts and expertise. Um, and so really enjoy being kind of one of generally kind of eight to 12 investors in a cap table. Uh, for me, it's also really important to meet those people. Um, I look silent equity capital partners, folks that just kind of write the check and then disappear. Um, that, that can be great in certain circumstances, but I'm a really big believer that, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard going from not ever having been a CEO before to being one. And the money's great, but what's even better than that is when you also get advice and guidance from, from people who uh, have that to offer. And sometimes that's because they're like me and they work with over 50 searchers. Um, but sometimes it's just because these are folks who've had wonderful careers and been really successful doing something else. So that's part of it. I prefer to be a minority investor so I can be part of a community of investors that are providing support to these searcher CEOs. Um, and then on the other side, I mainly invest in the equity. And the reason is because Again, as, as a search fund investor, I, I kind of think of I'm playing a small role in solving this big problem, right? This kind of transition of businesses through the silver tsunami. It turns out that it's actually been relatively easy to raise debt uh, to put on these small businesses for a long time, right? We have the SBA 7A program, which has been around for decades. Uh, there are co small commercial banks all throughout the country that provide loans to small businesses. So those are products that have been available, that work well. There's lots of wonderful service providers in the space. I think the really interesting and new thing is that historically, it's been really hard to raise equity capital, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea of let me take someone who's never run a business before, give them 200000 a million dollars, and like, let's hope they figure out how to be a CEO of a company that they have no experience operating in before. You know, for a long, long time, people thought that was the craziest idea they've ever heard. And it's really only in the last few years where people are realizing that, yeah, you actually you can make that work. It's not easy and it's not for everyone and it's not for every type of business. But for a lot of people and a lot of types of businesses, that can work. And so um, I like to participate in that, that kind of part of the universe because I think that's that's really where the, the problem set is. There's not enough folks out there like me that are that are dedicating their time and their capital to doing this. Gotcha. And so how does like your strategy, right? The under 25 million, you know, over 10, you know, minority equity investor strategy, how does that sort of fit within the broader scope of investors and search funds generally? Do you think that your strategy is relatively common? Do you think that there are other particular strategies that tend to be uh, other kind of patterns that you see when you're working with other investors? Yeah. So that actually is the original search fund model. So the traditional search fund model, it's called, was started in 1984. Um, Stanford claims it was started out of Stanford. Harvard Business School claims it was started out of Harvard Business School. But right. I do think generally it's accepted that it was started out of Stanford Business School. And for a long time, it was this kind of weird thing, like a, a person or two would do it every other year and no one kind of understood what it was. But right around the early 2000s, it started to take off. And then by the mid 2000s, it kind of troughed at 15 people a year or, or sorry, stabilized at 15 people a year. And that's kind of what it looked like for almost a decade. And then in 2012, it started increasing again. And um, the kind of number of searchers doing the traditional model is 7x since 2012. So kind of a lot of growth. We, in a short we use this table in our pitch deck all the time. It's the, the exponential increase in the number of uh, searchers. So I, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And so... Um, I really like that model because look, this is hard, 
right? If it were easy for every person to find a wonderful small business, acquire it and run it as a CEO with no experience, this problem would have been solved decades ago, right? So we're still really in the early innings. And um, what I found is that those folks like me who are investing alongside those traditional search fund criteria, they found something that kind of works, right? We're no longer in that part of the journey where we're just trying to figure it out. And unfortunately, that means searchers are the collateral damage. Like they're starting to be a playbook. They're starting to be guidance and advice and guardrails we can put around it to help make folks successful that are trying to do this wild and crazy thing. And so I kind of like investing alongside those folks because it feels like we have a better product to offer. Um, but look, like the reality is this model works not because it's the right investors or because there's a magical zone between 10 and $25 million. The, you know, the, the number one reason this model works is because of talent. Mm -hmm. Really talented searchers have the best processes. They find the best companies and they're the best CEOs. And look, talent's model agnostic. I know really talented people doing the self-funded thing and trying to get a big SBA 7A loan and take out personally guaranteed debt to buy a small company. And I know really talented folks buying these 10 to $25 million enterprise value companies. So um, I think over time, um, there's more support and better resources and infrastructure for the folks that are trying to buy those less than $10 million enterprise value companies. Um, and that's great. But but for now, and, and I do look in that world as well, because again, it's all about talent, but I tend to find I'm spending most of my time with the traditional model, just because that's the place where I feel like I can be the most helpful and investors have, um, you know, specific and thoughtful and actionable experience and advice they can provide. Very cool. Searchers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what does a buyer need to do in order to find investors and be attractive to investors? So is there anything, you know, I guess that's part one. And the second part is, is there anything in particular that a buyer has done to catch your attention that you thought was particularly noteworthy? Yeah. I mean, it really is fundamentally about the intrinsics. I mean, uh, every searcher that I've invested in out of the Feta fund so far is someone I've known for at least six months. So self-funded searches out there that maybe want to work with me, uh, I want to meet you way before you find a deal. And the reason why is because someone can have the most impressive resume in the world and put together the prettiest consulting slide deck to look at their deal um, or to kind of show off their deal. But fundamentally, it's about kind of what's inside the person. Are they, do they feel this deep passion to do this thing despite the fact that it's hard and unfun a lot of the time? Um, do they have the type of stick to to be able to deal with kind of it constantly feels like you're failing, right? I mean, you're going to be, it's for a lot of folks, it's the first time they've ever done due diligence on a small company. When you buy the business, you're trying to figure out how to be a CEO and manage a bunch of people, right? A lot of people don't have that kind of inner quality and resilience to be able to survive being really bad at stuff for a long period of time, you know? Um, and, and so it's really about these intrinsic. And then there's also, and maybe this is the biggest one, there's a real energizer bunny quality that the most successful searchers have. Um, for most people who are going into a search, they've previously been W-2 employees. And I think a common experience that searchers face when they launch their search is that um, the only person you're accountable to is yourself. And you know, not having that structure of a W-2 job, for some people, it reduces, it makes it harder for them to find it within themselves to just put in the number of hours you need to be successful. Um, and so that's, I think, the last thing. And, and for those kind of intrinsics related qualities, 
boy, it's a lot easier to figure that out if I have a lot of time to get to know someone. And um, yeah. And I generally find that if I can find folks that are that have those inner qualities, like I think of my job as an investor to point them away from those two X opportunities that might create a couple hundred thousand dollars of personal value towards that for them and move them towards those 10 X opportunities where you know, they could, could have the option to put 10 or 20 or $25 million in their pocket and, and you know, change, change the life of, of their families and, and, you know, their children and their, their grandchildren. So. Yeah, absolutely. There's such a intense survivorship bias when it comes to entrepreneurship. It's really, I don't know, you see, I've been an entrepreneur for a while. You see people sort of get really big and then fall off. And there's a level of sort of consistency, both in your habits and emotionally that it takes to really be able to get up every single day and deal with the up and ups and downs with the level of, uh, you know, thoughtfulness and discipline. Um, you know, that, that really resonates for sure. Um, and anything that someone's done to really catch your attention off right off the bat, or is it really just that, that steady six month relationship? Uh, he, here's what I love. And, and I especially see it when I get to know someone who's in business school and I'll meet them in September of their first year. And then we'll talk again in January of their first year, so just a couple months later. If between the times I've spoken to you, you have gone from being someone who's a rookie and a newbie to the world to starting to sound like a content expert. You've spoken to 50 searchers and searcher CEOs. You've spoken to other investors. You've reached out to brokers and looked on platforms like Axial and Biz by Sell and you know, reached out to a seller to see if you wanted to buy their company and start to have thoughts about, and, and, and more importantly, questions about why investors are more interested in one type of company than another. Uh, you're great about communication. Um, and really, honestly, 80% of that, that is just frequency, just kind of giving me updates and, you know, uh, on kind of what you're thinking and what you're doing and why. Um, when I see that type of progress without any sort of um, encouragement from me, just someone who finds it so deeply compelled within themselves to be that, to do that type of activity, to, to run great process. To me, that's a good sign that this is going to be someone who can figure out how to reach out to 7,000 business owners in 21 months and acquire an amazing company and then figure out how to be a CEO, despite the fact that they have no experience doing that before. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so sort of from our lens, we also see a lot of people across the, the platforms in this space talking about investing in search funds. So people who don't necessarily want to operate, but do want to be capital providers in this space. You know, any advice to people who are thinking about going down that path? Um, what does it take to be a good uh, search fund investor? Yeah. The wonderful thing about our world, uh, and, and this does feel quite a bit different than private equity, which is where I spent some time before becoming a search fund investor, is that the way you have staying power as a search fund investor is by being able to create value for searchers. Mm -hmm. There's a really positive feedback. And I write about, I've written about this a little bit on Twitter. There's a really positive feedback loop in our community where when this upcoming generation of searchers is trying to figure out who they want to work with, they talk to current searchers. Right. And what that means is that when you provide value to people who are currently searching, they want to tell other friends about it. And so, and I've seen this over time, those investors that are out there and doing things the right way, they're good to work with. They're trying to, they're returning phone calls and having thoughtful things to say, but they're also not being too overbearing and getting in the way of the searcher's autonomy. You see those folks have staying power and folks that don't do that stuff, they've disappeared. So that's, I think, the number one thing, adding value. This is an ecosystem that's healthy. And one of the ways it's healthy is because investors that add value to searchers, they have staying power. It's, it's about that more than anything else.
but a couple of other things. Um, it's uh, there are some investors out there that get into the space with an asset first mentality, right? Um, I, if you reach out to 20,000 business owners, you'll find that one magical company that's for a super cheap valuation and that's great. And it doesn't matter who runs it just because we're getting it at such a cheap price that anyone could run it and, and we'll make money. Uh, and then there's the kind of opposite side of the coin, which is it almost doesn't matter with a few exceptions, but it almost doesn't matter what talented searchers buy. It's just, um, if it's the right person, they'll figure out how to succeed. And again, the job of search fund investors is to help point them towards 10x opportunities that are going to provide better leverage on their time, as opposed to like a business that might 2x in a few years. Uh, I'm obviously clearly in that second camp. I think a lot of investors that first come into this world end up being in that first camp and you can really get in trouble. Hmm. Um, and then the very last thing is the number one most common question I get from folks who are thinking about breaking into this ecosystem as search fund investors. And by the way, if you're thinking about doing that, please feel free to reach out to me via DM on Twitter. I, I'm happy to provide advice um, and, and just thoughts and uh, where I can be helpful. Um, at at FetaFund. Yeah. Yes. Um, the, the number one question I get is, so Mill, how do you figure out who to invest in? All these people seem so good. And that's the challenge. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, it's a little bit like, I think, venture capital in that you only really know how to identify a good searcher when you've worked with 50 plus before and, and made a couple of mistakes and identified some folks that actually weren't a good fit. Um, but, but I think that's something to be aware of when you're early on in your journey and you meet five searchers and all five of them seem like great people to invest capital behind. Maybe it's lucky and you're like, you know, you're a pitcher and you threw, or you're a batter and you hit 500 home runs in a row. Um, but, uh, but it could, could just be, you need a little some time calibrating to make sure that you're, um, you're really kind of thinking through the types of folks you're going to be giving money to. When you think about a 2X opportunity versus a 10X opportunity, I mean, a lot of businesses will have like a certain profile, right? So there's, you know, in the traditional search space, there are, you know, like ranges of EBITDA that people are looking for and ranges of enterprise value and like, you know, certain industries, home services is really popular, manufacturing is popular, right? So how do you sort of within those even industries say, hey, this is a 2X, this is a 10X, like you say, you talk about kind of guiding people in that direction, like what's some of the advice you typically give? Yeah, there's two big pieces of advice. The first is buying with the exit in mind. And I specifically mean one thing here. When you buy a small business, a common CEO experience is that there are so many ways, if you bought a great business, right? There are so many ways you could win that it can be a little bit overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And you can keep playing through the same playbook that the old CEO put in place, but there's a famous quote, right? If you, if you want different results, do different things. So um, that's a, it's intimidating. You're in the situation and there's 10 different things you do and you don't know which one to do. And I think one thoughtful way to answer that question is to look up market. If you bought a business with 10 million of enterprise value, look for the company that's kind of like yours, but worth 50 million or 100 million and steal their playbook. See what they look like versus what you look like and try to get there. And the funny thing is that if you do that, that person who owns that $50 million enterprise value business, boy, they're sure excited about buying your company because it looks like this thing that they just made a bunch of money owning. So, um, 
I really like to say I, I just encourage searchers to use that um, those larger companies they see out there as their compass of where they want to go towards. And so that's important because if you're buying a business and you look up market and you can't really find the like when I grow up version of that company, it could be because those companies don't exist. Um, or if you look up market and you see the when I grow up version of this company and instead of having 10 million of revenue, it has a hundred million dollars of revenue and it's only worth twice as much as the company you bought. It's probably a good inclination that um, you're going to spend a lot of time and may not be rewarded. I, I do want to just clarify one thing. I'm not saying you have to sell, right? I'm not saying the right. only way to monetize is by selling the business. I'm just saying it's really helpful as a strategic roadmap. So that's the first thing, you know, buy with the exit in mind. Think about what you want to be when you grow up by looking at other companies. And then the second is um, revenue quality. Everyone says it's important. I think it's even more important than people think it is. And by revenue quality, I mean businesses that from year to year, you don't start at zero. The most difficult thing about a non-recurring revenue business is on December 31st, you have 10 million of revenue. And on January 1st, you have zero. <laughs> um, constantly filling up that funnel ends up taking a ton of time and makes it hard to grow. When you have a business with five-year recurring contracts and 95% of your revenue renews from year to year because customers are happy and, and they renew even if their contracts lapse, um, that means that that first sale you make takes you from nine and a half million to 9.6 million. It's a way better place to be than starting at zero. And so uh, if your goal is to have those, if, if your goal is to try and prioritize those 10x opportunities, it's the easiest way to get there is by growing. And it's a lot easier to grow if you have a business that's, that's kind of high revenue, high revenue quality that kind of retains revenue easily. Gotcha. No, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, really appreciate it. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about lessons learned. So you've been doing this for a little while. You've worked with 50 searchers. Um, any particular lessons learned uh, from your time doing this? So maybe like a positive example and a negative example would be interesting. Yeah, um, that uh, I, I uh, my biggest lesson is is this one I've shared already that it's not about the asset, it's not about the company, it's really about the person. And yeah. um, I've made that mistake a few times. Finding a company you're unbelievably excited about, but you're not really sure if the searcher, if you feel confident that the searcher has the skills they need to be able to be successful. Maybe they'd be successful with a different type of, of company, but the company searcher fit isn't good. Um, and everyone ends up being unhappy. Even, even if the searcher is able to figure out how to grow that business, uh, they tend to just have a really bad time doing that, right? They're, they're kind of gritting their teeth through it um, as opposed to the, there being this kind of nice flywheel where they're able to grow. So, so that's the biggest lesson I've learned. It's, it's more about um, the person than it is about the company. Um, I think the second, but but if I were to provide one more, because I want to be sure. responsive to your question, um, I think um, it is really interesting how in the search fund world, things can go from terribly wrong to unbelievably great in such a short period of time. Hmm. I once invested in a company where nine months in, we almost ran out of cash. Um, we were doing all the right stuff. We went on like a hiring spree, uh, but it turned out that for this business, there was a little bit of a lag time between hiring new people and then being able to be productive and serve revenue. Mm -hmm. 
And then that and the searcher CEO didn't appreciate how important managing accounts receivables was. So we had a bunch of, you know, revenue that was going to come in that was booked already and, you know, on the balance sheet, but didn't actually have any cash in. And so we're nine months in, the company's growing, we're almost going to run out of money uh, or we're about to run out of money. And we're all kind of looking around and saying, hey, do, like, do we need to put more cash in? What do we think? We were narrowly able to avoid that, um, to avoid, uh, you know, having to like give up the keys, right? Running out of money. And then nine months later, we sold it in 5X investors wow. initial. Fantastic. Right. And and look, fundamentally, that success story is all about the searcher CEO. It was just a brilliant and talented person that figured it out. But um, I love to tell that story because for people who are experienced private equity investors, that that sounds like a, you know, whole different ballgame, right? That doesn't really happen with these kind of, huge companies where the way you grow is by putting a bunch of debt on it and hoping we don't, you know, have to give the keys back to the bank. So that's, I think the kind of other lesson and it's both positive and negative, right? On the, on the first hand, it's positive because the stories are really wonderful, incredible. These, these great stories of growth and real companies being built. Um, but it's negative because that's, you know, requires some real intestinal fortitude to be an investor in that type of company, uh, and not get squeamish. Um, so that's a little bit of a challenge being able to manage that mentality. Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple of different scenarios where um, the seller is buying and then turning around and selling it after after the fact, right? So what about situations like we see kind of the rise of the hold co in the last you know eight months, and there's a lot of talk about hey, I'm going to hold forever. There's a lot of prominent people on Twitter who are advocating for that position. You see like Brent B. Shore and Permanent Equity doing that work. What sort of as an investor? Do you look for searchers who are thinking about, you know, you talk about look, you know, prepare for the sale ahead of time. Are you typically thinking about, you know, five years from now, what does the sale look like? Or is it really, you know, if you're an investor, what's your upside when it comes to like a holding company that that holds forever, for example? Yeah. I mean, when I raised the FEDA fund part, I was pretty intentional about the LPs I picked. And one of the things I was looking for was investors who weren't just trying to make a quick buck. Like if they had the ability to own businesses that could be long-term compounders, they were interested in staying invested in those companies. So um, it's not so much about, hey, what should we sell so we can kind of put some, you know, uh, monetize quickly. Um, the time horizon can be really, really long. It's just that the primary, there's a famous quote from a search fund investor named Bill Egan. It's that I want to get off the train when the conductor gets off the train. That's his quote. Yeah. And what often happens during the search fund process is the CEO will have one idea about what success looks like. And then five years in, 10 years in, that idea changes, which look, is natural. Um, a lot of the folks doing this are in their early 30s. You know, if you buy a business and you're 30 and then it, you're, you know, you turn 40, right? That means you spent more of your career as a searcher and searcher CEO than all the time you spent before that moment. It's natural for people's preferences to change as time passes. And I think what I've noticed is that when you're the CEO of a business and you haven't been paying yourself that great compared to your buddies that are making a ton of money uh, as W2 employees at these great companies and uh you kind of look at what you own and then see that 10 or 15 or $25 million of your net worth is locked up in this kind of paper, <laughs> right? This theoretical equity. Um, 
that starts to kind of burn a hole in your pocket. It, it changes. Um, it starts to feel like, man, it would be nice to, to diver diversify away from that. Maybe like take some of that and make it into cash, buy a really nice house, put some money in a 529B for my children. Um, when you start to sit on that type of money, your preferences can change. And then that's often a catalyst for a sale event because really the easiest way to realize value from your company is to sell it to someone else. Dividend, kind of doing recaps by borrowing money from the bank, that can help a little bit, but not you know on the same magnitude. And so that's kind of really the big thing I've noticed that for a lot of searcher CEOs, there just comes to be a point in time when um, their preferences change, either because they have a lot of paper wealth in their pocket or because look, like um, it's, it's pretty presumptuous to buy a company today and then say 30 years from now, I know I want to be running the same company. No one knows, right? Um, that said, like I do know folks who've done that, who've you know run companies for a long, long time, and they happen to find this company that they buy that is exactly the right fit. And um, there's one very famous searcher who the MOIC to his original investors, the kind of cash on cash return, is 76 times. That's not an IRR. That means if you put you know if you put a million dollars in, that million dollars is now worth 76 million dollars. But he's been running this thing for a couple of decades, right? So um, there are some folks who do it that way. But the majority of people who are doing this, they realize about five years in, either they want to be doing something else or or just like having that much money at risk starts to feel pain, um, painful. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a great answer. Um, we got an interesting question from the audience here. So um, uh, we have Hunter who asks, what is the typical salary you see for a CEO at an acquired company? Yeah. So in the traditional search fund model, um, the kind of general salary right out of the gate is a hundred to $130,000 of base salary. And then a base, like a bonus a target bonus of 25 to 30% on top of that. Um, that's, uh, sorry, that's during the search stage. It's 120 to $130,000 when you search. And then right. when you, I was going to say, what, what has that differ between the, the search phase versus the operations phase? Okay. So 120, yeah. 120 for the search phase. And then correct. And, and there's no bonus during that stage. That's because, and there's plenty of reasons why, but um, one of the one of the reasons that searchers tend to not want to draw too much salary at that stage is because money that's spent in that upfront stage, they end up having to pay for later. It's a longer discussion, but it's something called the search fund step up. And if you're interested, the Stanford search fund study and the Stanford primer on search funds talk about that at length. But there's a little bit of a disincentive for searchers going the traditional model to raise too much money because it kind of comes back and hurts them later. So during the search stage, it's generally about 120 to $130,000 a year. That's for two years. Once you acquire a business though, that changes and steps up to a kind of base salary of about $180,000 a year, and then a bonus of about 30%, 25 to 30% on top of that. So you're kind of clearing low 200s. Look, that obviously then increases over time. Um, Part of the reason there's a few part of the reason that salary is low is because if you're buying a business one and a half million dollars of EBITDA before you bought it, right? Um, it's it's hard. It's like hard to pay yourself a larger salary. And I think the other thing is um, the majority of the value that searchers realize uh, comes from the sale of their company. So the typical searcher, and and this is all straight from the Stanford study, so you you guys can check it out yourself. The typical searcher takes home about $7.6 million after running their business for five years. So as you can see, that kind of lower cash comp is offset by quite a meaningful um, equity equity stake in, in the company. So 
Gotcha. Thank you. Um, so I have, uh, you know, a couple more questions here. Um, definitely want to encourage the audience to chime in with questions. I see Morgan's made a number of really insightful comments. Please uh, ask any questions you have of uh, Samil and he'll, uh, you know, we'll make sure you get uh, called on. Um, there seems to be a lot of change happening in our industry all the time. So, you know, we see interest rates being a factor. We see, you know, the pandemic shifting seller expectations. We see technology changes, change to the SBA. Um, what are some of your, and we've talked a little bit about kind of your philosophy about search funds going forward uh, when we chatted yesterday. What are your thoughts on sort of like where search is going over the next five years? Man, this is one of the most fun things about being a search fund investor. Seriously, I mean, the space is so dynamic. Everyone knows about the growth and number of searchers a year. I think the thing that people have less visibility into is how even just the definition of what is a reasonable company to acquire via search fund has changed dramatically. Yeah. When I first got into this in 2016, it was controversial to buy HVAC plumbing business because those businesses had recurring CapEx needs and they were not contractually recurring. And so there's serious discussion by some really smart investors in the community about, hey, do we think someone who's never been a CEO before can be successful running a company like this? And for those in the audience who've kind of listened to the umpteen podcast out there and follow along in SMB Twitter and other sources, that almost seems like a silly point right. uh, just because there's so many searches out there buying HVAC and plumbing companies. Um, and so the definition of what is a reasonable search fund acquisition has evolved over time. Um, and uh, the service providers have evolved over time, the, the technology stack and the kind of way people do sourcing, uh, the presence of information. This used to really be paywalled. I mean, 2015, um, there were you know maybe 20 searchers a year, something like that, 2025. And the only way you really heard about search, it was kind of paywalled behind a $200,000 education at Stanford Business School or Harvard Business School. So there's been a ton of different changes. And I'm excited to see how that continues, right? Um, information about search being more readily available and freely available. Um, the types of companies that search fund investors think a first time CEO can be successful running, that's gonna evolve over time. The number of service providers, I mean, folks like SMB Law Group didn't exist just a few, few years ago, right? Um, that expanding over time and there being more service providers who are specifically trying to serve searchers, I think all that stuff's gonna evolve. But my hot take to really answer your question with something meaningful, I think the current question that search fund investors and searchers are grappling with, it's not about industry, right? 2019 and 2020, the like the big question was, can people buy SaaS companies that aren't very profitable? That's been shown to work. You know, there's all there's been some involvement, evolution in that. But I think the big question now is. As a first-time searcher CEO, can you be successful running a company that's worth $50 million or more when you acquire it, right? There's a pair of searchers who bought a business a year or two ago that was worth $140 million when they bought it. They bought the company by outpaying a private equity firm. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. Historically, right, the, the, the premise behind the search fund model is we're buying these wonderful companies that are diamonds in the rough, and if we don't buy it, no one will, and this business is going to shut down or get kind of, you know, stripped for parts and sold to a competitor or a private equity firm. Um, but, you know, people are starting to question that. Maybe that doesn't matter, right? Uh, and so I think that'll be an interesting question. Uh, I don't really know. I don't really know what the answer is, but boy, I'm excited to find out in three or four years when we see if that's worked or not. Yeah, I love it. That's uh, That's really exciting. I'd love to see 
a world where, I mean, just with the, the number of investors coming into this space and people looking at the space, it seems more feasible than it did in the past where you could, if you were a very good fundraiser and you got the right capital uh, put together, you could put together a group to outbid a, a private equity firm on a company where you have a lot of conviction. It'd be very interesting to see if that trend continues to grow or you know, if it's really more of a unusual situation. Um, we have another question from the audience that I thought was interesting. So um, do you invest, do you invest internationally? And um, if so, or if not, you, could you share a little bit of your experience and predictions on you know, European search funds in particular? Yes. I don't invest internationally. It's not because I don't believe the search fund model can work over there. It's because um, I only get to do this because searchers have positive things to say about me. And I don't feel like I have too much smart to say about acquiring businesses abroad. Just the context is so different. I've been an investor um, and, and kind of along for the ride in a few investments in Canadian companies. And even that seems super different than um, search fund businesses in the US. The, the governance and the market dynamics and all that stuff feels so different, even though it's Canada, you know, it's just across the border and feels so similar to America in a lot of ways. So that's the big thing. I've steered clear from that because I'm just not sure how helpful I can be. And, um, you know, that that starts to be a problem, right? If, if someone works with me and wants to acquire business abroad and then they, you know, tell the next generation of searchers, hey, Somal honestly wasn't that helpful. Um, then that kind of impacts my ability to keep doing this. So maybe it'll change one day, but um, until I feel like I can really add value to searchers who are looking abroad, um, I, I don't really want to dip my dip my toe in that world. But in terms of how it's evolving, look, I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, I'm I'm pleased to say that out of the nation's top business schools, there's a lot of programming now and interest from students in trying to take the search fund model that's worked so successfully in the United States and apply it in other contexts. Um, and there's, there's been a big growth in that model, particularly in Latin America. You've seen a lot of searchers and, and kind of search fund acquisitions there. Um, but besides knowing that it's a focus for a lot of members of the community, there's specific investors that have raised funds because they want to invest exclusively in international deals. Um, and, and there's been a really significant growth in the number of international search funds. Unfortunately, I don't have too much smart to say. So. No, that's, that's fair. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, I have one more question and then, um, we'll check and see if there's anything else from the audience. And if not, we can wrap. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the uh, similarities and differences between, you know, being an LP or managing LPs for like a, a, if you're a, if you're a search fund and you're managing your LPs, your investors, how does that compare to like your experience in PE, for example, like what is a you know, a search fund LP versus a, a private equity LP or a VC LP? Like how, how does that relationship differ? Yeah, I think uh, the relationship is a little bit different and it's because the preferences are slightly different. Um, for any investor, the return part of it is gonna be the most important part. So there's no question that's a similarity, right? People invest money in a private equity fund or in a search fund investing fund like the FEDA fund because um, they want their money to be returned back to them and they want to make a little bit of money. But beyond that, there's quite a big difference, right? When I worked in private equity, our LPs were pretty much only focused on returns. That was, that was really the only criteria. But one thing I've been pleased uh, to say about people who are interested in investing in search funds and kind of funds of search funds like my fund um, is that uh, a lot of them kind of... Um, 
they they feel that same mission that I feel, and that uh, we're playing a role in transforming American small business. Um, these are folks who get excited not only about the the um, the returns they're getting, but about you know they want to be able to go to the cocktail a cocktail party with their friends and say, look, I invested in this ambulance business that had 50 employees when we bought it in 2019, and today it's 250 employees, right? Um, this you know that this, the kind of young person that we put in charge of this business is a wonderful person, used to be a you know a green beret, and now runs a small business, and they've they've kind of put food on the table of 200 families. That kind of soft part of it, having an attachment to the types of companies that we buy and the transformative experiences those companies undergo and how that impacts people who purchase services from those companies or work for those companies, it, it is a little bit a part of the experience. Um, and I would also observe both in my own fund and, and from in investors and other fund of search funds, uh, there's a fair number of small business entrepreneurs right? Kind of CEOs of small companies that see this as a way to not only make some money, but um, kind of essentially give back to the next generation of entrepreneurs. And man, that's fun. It's wonderful when uh, the investors in your fund are also mission driven, um, at least a little bit, right? Uh, in terms of uh, just kind of satisfying everyone's expect expectations and aligning incentives and objectives and goals. So... Fantastic. Um, last question from the audience. Um, what is your opinion on sponsored search funds? Uh, clarifying question. Is that like an incubated search fund? So something like search fund accelerator or next gen growth partners? Just want to make sure I answer the question correctly. Yep. Uh, if you're, if you're the LinkedIn user that asked that question, please, uh, please reply in the chat. Uh, what do you mean by sponsored search fund? All right. We're, uh, no, 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 no reply. Uh, no reply as of now. Um, there's another person who asked about the maximum age for being a searcher. Like can a person sure. start a, a searcher at 40? I know that I've spoken to searchers well into their fifties. I'm, I'm curious if you have an idea of the ideal age for a searcher. Oh yeah, of course. It's, uh, it's really more about, uh, it's more about the person than the age, right? Like notice I didn't say the most successful searchers have XYZ resume. It really isn't about the resume. It's about intrinsics. And, um, and it's about kind of the type of company you're trying to buy. And, and um, uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think age is a factor. I've seen really successful searchers. Um, the, uh, the first investment out of my fund was in a company called Velix. The CEO of that business just turned 40. So, you know. And on, on, the, on the sponsored search fund, uh, sponsored by a company, not an accelerator. Oh, interesting. Um, I... I can think of one Stanford student that pers re who recently pursued that direction, um, but I, I can't think of any kind of large scale folks doing that, right? But I think probably the decision is similar to what folks who decide to work with Alpine, a private equity firm, and, and become a CEO in training or some of these other programs, what, what their lived-in experience is like. So I'll speak to that and maybe it's helpful to the sponsored search point. Um, there's a really big difference between having 10 investors who've each owned 10% of your search fund and having one investor that owns 100% of your search fund. The relationship you have with that investor who owns 100% of your search fund, um, it feels a lot more like an employer-employee relationship. Right. 
Now look, there's some massive benefits to doing that. You only have to convince one person to invest in your deal. They're often able to and excited about providing specific resources and help and support and ideas and guidance. So you can get a lot of in, you know support and infrastructure around you. However, um, many of the people I work with who are searchers, they, they want to be entrepreneurs. That's kind of part of this for them. It's, it's about leaving the W2 job and, and making a bet on themselves. And um, the tricky thing about doing one of those other models is you definitely get a ton of support, maybe even more support than you would get from the traditional search fund model. Um, but it may not move you closer to your goal, right? If, if that ends up feeling like a W2 job, then you've just traded one for another. And, and maybe uh, you get to run a small business, but it's, uh, you may not you may not feel like you're an entrepreneur in the same way. So that's I think the main consideration. But yes, the value prop is great. I know folks who've gone kind of roughly that route and been thrilled and super pleased with the quality of support and resources around them. It's mainly about you and what your specific vision is. Does that fit your definition of being a search fund entrepreneur? Yeah, that's a that's a great answer. I was sort of my brain went to um, somewhere between kind of W2 corporate development and search funds is sort of what this sounded like to me. And, you know, we, we've spoken to a number of people in corporate development and there's, I mean, it's just a very different ball game in terms of the resources at play, the, um, the goals of those resources, you know, maybe you're acquiring a company for their tech stack in particular and how that tech stack in integrates with the company relative to versus your ability to, you know, positively impact the mission or the operations of a specific company based on its structure and its track record. So I, I think it's, you know, from a corporate development side, that's that's a slightly different calculus. You know, to your point, uh, Samil. Um, but uh, anyway, you know, I think we are we are at time. You know, our goal is to keep all of these, you know, an hour or less, and we're we're hitting this. Uh, we're hitting a really good point now. But uh, thank you so much for your time. This has just been fantastic. Just great knowledge for the community. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Um, and uh, everyone, please follow Samil on Twitter at Fedafund. Um, I am at Levine JM. We are Private Market Labs. Uh, and thank you for attending this episode. Thanks for the wonderful questions, folks. This was really fun. I appreciate you inviting me on here, Josh. Of course. Um, we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining. Take care, everyone. Take care.